You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Hi, Anthem. That caught me off guard. What, you thought I was talking about someone else? Hello, gorgeous. Yeah, I was just talking to that coffee filter. He's a very... It's a handsome coffee filter. Beautiful. We've really upgraded our coffee. I have to say, I feel like our coffee setup is excellent. Having done the traveling that you and I have been doing recently Mm. and dealing with a variety of subpar coffee setups... With the exception of when we go to visit your family and we go to visit my family, the coffee game is on point. That's because my dad, Joe Bain, has a percolator from 1981. And apparently his formula for coffee is to always put two scoops more than recommended. Yes. He he revealed to me that he (laughs) refers to the recipe as seven volcano scoops. (laughs) So now all of you know that in case you can... (laughs) track down a oh 1981 Farberware percolator. Oh my God, that's so funny. eBay sells out of 1981 Farberware percolators oh, instantly. God damn it, Joe. And I myself and learned how to use the Melita pour over mm-hmm. from my mom. Yep. That's good coffee. That's good coffee. Now, the other places that we have been taking up residence, I'm talking about Airbnbs. I'm talking about hotels. Are you about to... They're coming at us with this whack Keurig energy. Sam hates a Keurig. Let me tell you why. Guaranteed fury. It's not just that the coffee tastes like non-potable water. Mm -hmm. Like dirty water. Like dirty water. It's that they are terrible for the environment. That's true. You cannot adjust the amount of water that you want to use. For taste and caffeination level, and as a recent convert to the gospel of the daily ground bean, which, (laughs) according to Jake, my brother, extracts the maximum, not just caffeine, but flavor from the roasted bean. So that's what's happening coffee-wise at our house. Wow. And all I said was, hey, handsome. And you really (laughs) took it. I'm dissociating from the fact that I can't deal with your intimacy. Kind of like Brenda Chenoweth. Boom, boom, boom. That was a segue. Also, not true. On my part. I'm very comfortable with your care and affection towards me. In fact, it makes me glow. Okay, sugar plum. (laughs) Hey, sugar plum. You know what season... Of the year those are consumed, Christmas time. Christmas, which is this episode. God, I'm like a segue machine. <laughs> in that. Can we segue into the emails then? Yes, we can. Ladies and gentlemen, folks, thank you to the many of you that wrote to us this week. Mm-hmm. We're going to read just a selection of the good people who reached us at FFG at WALT.FM, which you yourself can do should you be so inclined we love hearing from all of you let us begin with this message from solen solen let me know if i am mispronouncing that solen writes hi sam adrian and the many other listeners winky face oh i'm listening from france <gasps> bonjour bonjour solen 
since the very beginning. Don't think you are alone in this. We are with you. Oh my God. That is so kind. Thank you. That is you. so sweet. I am also a longtime listener of Family Ghosts, which is still one of my favorite podcasts. So Len, you are one of my favorite people. Yep. I don't remember how I found it, but I remember clearly listening to the first episodes in 2017 on the bus from New Jersey to New York, where I lived and worked at the time, and looking through the windows at all those, to me, very American little towns. May I just pause here to say, oh my God. I appreciate this so much. And the only thing that I miss about traveling by bus, since I pretty much drive everywhere now, is exactly what Selene is describing. Yeah. Stretches I agree. of highway that I associate with certain podcast episodes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Selene says, I was so happy to see that you were doing a Six Feet Under podcast. I love this show, which, like this companion podcast, I found through another show because I loved Dexter so much and wanted more of Michael C. Hall. Mm. Maybe that's why David is my favorite character. I honestly found his entire family annoying except him at first, but then started to like them all. Let me just pause to say, I think that's interesting because there are probably a lot of people, not as independent in their thinking as Solen, who initially found David to be the most annoying character. Hmm. Anyway, Solen continues, I'm just glad I'm along for the ride. Oh my God. Thank you, Solen. Solen, we are glad that you are along for the ride. And... I think rides are a big part of this episode too. <laughs> that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, in multiple interpretations of that word. Mm. Um, anyway, the the ride of moving through the world, listening to podcasts, is a ride that is wonderful to share. Yeah. So thank you, Solen. This next email comes from Susan. Susan writes, "Hello, I watched Six Feet Under when it came out, and have not revisited it until now." Seeing it as a 55-year-old, I feel like I'm seeing it with new eyes. I still love it as much as I did way back when. The thing that I noticed on this watching, especially in the first season, all the women seem to be written by men. Ruth seems to be a mashup of relationships male writers are piecing together from what they know about their own mothers. Mm. Claire has always seemed to be too mature for her age in a way that makes me think early writers didn't know any teenagers. (laughs) They are creating a person who is almost, in a way, older than everyone else. As for Brenda, I am sorry. She's completely written as a fantasy woman. She's Whoa. hot when they need her to be. She's cold when they need her to be. And she doesn't seem to have a point of view at this point in the series, except to be the saucy girl. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into Brenda, but I feel like if a woman wrote her, even if the storylines were the same, she would have some softer edges. I sincerely hope that you get a writer to one day join the podcast so I can find out if this was the case. That's a real goal. I really want us to get a writer on. Yes, me too. Me too. And I need to pay a little bit closer attention going forward. And I will. Thank you, Susan, to whether the writers of each episode were male or female or somewhere else on the spectrum. Um, This one that we're about to talk about tonight was written by a man named Alan Taylor, which I remember only noticing because he wrote a bunch of episodes of The Sopranos. Mm, Yes. Or at least directed some. I don't know if he also wrote them. Um. What do you make of what do you make of this, Adrian? Thank you for writing, Susan, and, Susan, and for sharing your perspective. I think that also ties into what we are saying with one of our guests, I think, Michael, about how all of the women on the show are an invisible woman. I want to think more on that. I think that's really I definitely agree that like Brenda is I think in the first season. I would agree with that. But now that we understand so much more of Brenda's backstory, 
I think I have a little bit more give with her. I think that in this episode, I think that in season two, Brenda is doing a lot of exploring. And that is kind of a strange thing to watch over a series of episodes. What do you think of this point about how if she had been written by a woman, she would have softer edges? I know, I'm kind of... I'm interpreting that to mean that Susan feels a little bit like the writers are just, like, kind of view female characters as having, like, a few different gears that they can shift into, which is freaking out and being unreasonable and scared. Being being a cold bitch. Being cold, yeah. Yeah. Where rather than it, seeming to have a a connective personality that unites like, all these identities, she's more manic depressive pixie dream girl. Right, right, right. Like she has, you know, the serious bouts, but you know, she did have like a near death experience too, which I think we kind of forget mm-hmm. offset her depression. You know, on top, you know, I think that Brenda's really reflecting a lot on what life has she lived? Mm -hmm. And I think she's really realizing that like she hasn't really lived a full life yet. That is an interesting... I think we're going to get too deep into other things. That is an interesting counter to what Susan is saying, which is that the plot of season two so far has very much been about Brenda trying to figure out who she is absent the caregiver role towards Mm -hmm. Billy. And so possibly a reason that the show might a creator of the show or writer on the show might offer for why her personality is changing so much is that she's kind of discovering it or looking for it for the first time. Yeah. And that's kind of something that people do in their early twenties. That's something that, you know, if you don't immediately rush into things with a career or a partner that that's some like exploration that you do a little bit earlier. And I think she's a little late to that. But I would be curious to know if there are other women listening who share this perception, basically that Brenda's many modes are not well assembled, so to speak. Sure. Into, into the framework of one character. What about this idea of Claire being written by people who've never met a teenager? I def I do agree. I think that she does have the right amount of angst. Mm-hmm. And right. she's the youngest. Jessica, my youngest sister, is so much more precocious because she had two older siblings. Right. So I think that, that those are also things that we need to take into consideration is that mm-hmm. she's not just female, but she's also the youngest. And her brothers are considerably older than her. Yeah. And also she her parents do like what they do for a living is so it just forces you to think about things that like not everybody, not every kid contemplates. And it's not like her dad goes off to an office and comes back and she has to just do a sentence of what she thinks her dad does all day. Like mm-hmm. she really sees it. Yeah. And, and she we also get that in this episode, we need to stop talking about this because, and she also probably it. like Claire probably doesn't have almost anyone she can talk to. No, not at all about, about these things. But I think what Susan's really putting her finger on here is there are like you and I are coming up with these just possible justifications for why the characters seem this way. Like 
yes, Claire is not written like a teenager in a lot of moments, but it is also part of her character that she's supposed to be an atypical teenager. Yeah. So where is the line of intentionality there? Are you saying we're forgiving the patriarchy? We may well be. Mm. We may well be. Mm. We'll have to get my own internal misogyny. Mm. We'll get Alan Taylor on here and say, so were you purposely reinforcing the patriarchy when you wrote these episodes? That's the first question I'll ask. That'll be our first first question. question. Actually, it would be great if that was the first question you asked him. (laughs) Buckle up, AT. Yep. All right. And now two more lighthearted emails. One from Tracy, our unofficial co-host, who sent us a picture of green M&Ms. That's so funny. (laughs) If you know, you know. And we also heard from all-star listener Leslie, who writes, you guys, it finally happened. Today, my husband and I visited the Moncado Mansion, a.k.a. the Six Feet Under house. (gasps) It was a chilly overcast morning, making it a little eerie. Classic. Perfect for visiting this creepy-looking house. I took a short video and several pictures. After that, we drove by what used to be the flower shop, but alas, it is now a Whole Foods. What? Ooh, Nikolai got that Bezos money. (laughs) Before it was a flower shop, it was a gas station. Fun fact, that gas station was the last place James Dean was seen alive. Whoa. Whoa. Very interesting, given the motorcycle theme in this episode. True. Wait, was James Dean, did he die on a motorcycle? I don't know. All I know is that he was a sub to Marlon Brando's Dom. Ooh, yes. Look it up. We don't even have time. Yeah, we don't have time. Anyway, Leslie continues, it was a fun little outing, and I'm so glad we finally got a chance to drive down and see it. Hopefully someday you two can make it down here and see it for yourselves. Oh my God, Sam, get in the car. Love, Leslie. We're so good at taking riches at this point. All right, friends. Thank you to all of you for writing. Again, the email address, if you would like to do what these fine people have done, is ffg at walt.fm. We will take a quick break, and after that, we will discuss Season 2, Episode 8. Oh my God, we have so much to talk about. Adrian, let us ride into this conversation on the motorcycle of, oh of words. You're grasping at straws, hon. Oh yeah, straws that I want to sip some Jack Daniels Please stop. through on Christmas. Why would you? <laughs> what, you are flailing. You're flailing. Flailing like... Without a life no, jacket. There's no good way to do that. Anyway... Let's start at the beginning with yes. the untimely death of Jesse Ray Johnson, Ugh. who passes away while dressed like Santa Claus, riding a motorcycle. Death of all happiness. Oof. Also, can we talk about how those children traumatized for will life forever, forever be scarred? Not only because they saw Santa Claus smash head into like a Pickup truck. Saw anybody die in a car accident. But they waved at him and distracted him. Oof, yeah. Okay, but so the theme is, what is the theme? Well, wait, I want to say one more thing about the kids. Mm -hmm. They, we always talk about intentionality on the show. I thought it was really remarkable that the kids had no visible reaction to this. They just sat there and stared as the helmet came skittering towards them. Yeah. 
They didn't scream. That's true. They didn't scream. And I couldn't tell if that, I think it's equally likely that the writers of the show did research on trauma responses of kids Mm -hmm. to witnessing extreme violence. Mm -hmm. And that is how kids tend to react or that they were attempting to play it as like a dark comedy beat of, I just waved to Santa Claus and then he got creamed by a truck. Mm. Tell me what it made you think about thematically. It's interesting because like, it's a very loving relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not some old couple that like is crotchety. It's not like the woman who literally killed her husband with a frying pan. Oh yeah. You know, like they clearly still love each other. So much. You know, and she did say a homophobic slur, which I was like, but they seem to get each other. And like, they seem to really understand each other. And yeah. And then like, you think that you're going to have a beautiful, regular, whatever day, joyful. You're dressed up as Santa Claus. You're riding your motorcycle. Kids are waving at you. Blammo. I thought it was an intentional allusion to the way that Nathaniel Sr. is killed just before Christmas in the first episode. Oh my God, I didn't even see that because he also gets hit by a car. Right. He gets hit by a bus. Yeah. But again, it's like a small thing rams into a big thing. Oh, wow. And he is a reoccurring character. I thought they were using it. I, I thought in this one, it was less about what the death represented in the way that we talk about in a lot of other episodes and more about just teeing, stringing the idea of their relationship through the episode as something for the characters to react to throughout the story. Totally. But it also served the purpose of reminding us about how Nathaniel Sr. died before Nathaniel Sr. makes his first reappearance in the show. Since that first episode, as himself, rather than as a projection. True. Which I found fascinating. True. And had forgotten about. And what is he doing in every single scene that he is remembered in? He's smoking, yes. Or drinking. But he's also trying to bring the family together. Yeah, that's true. He's either, he's asking Nate to stay, to come back at Christmas. Yeah. He's asking David to hang out with him. Yeah. He's asking Claire to stay for dinner that evening. Yeah. And then when the last time Ruth sees him, he's about to go pick up Nate and bring him back. (laughs) I found that very, very moving. Yeah. That's so interesting because like in some aspects, I think that he is accused of being kind of a neglectful dad. Yeah. But I think that's, I think that's why I found it so moving is that it, it wasn't that he was neglectful. It's that his intentions were misunderstood by. Totally. He was a weirdo dad. I'm also curious if he's so lax because Ruth is so uptight. Like there is a weird balance to it. There is a balance I I don't think I have anything further to that. Mm -hmm. I just noticed that in this episode, Ruth was particularly tight. And we didn't really understand why. And I am kind of inferring now that, oh, it's probably because it's the anniversary of the death of her husband. Yes. Yes. David says... We've had worse Christmases. Yeah. The Christmas that they did have this year was really joyous for as far as you can go with as, the Fishers. As much as the Fishers go. <laughs> as much as the Fishers go. And not not just with 
it seems like since the dinner wasn't really featured that much, it was probably like a very nice, fine, whatever dinner, which is kind of all you can ask for with them. Mm -hmm. Another thing I think is interesting about the, what we see beyond just the fact that in all of the flashbacks of Nathaniel senior, he's attempting to bring the family together. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that his last words to Nate were take care of yourself. I know. And in this episode, there are a couple of, of odd exchanges where Nate blows up really quickly at Brenda. Yeah. In ways that like right before he gives her the ring in the hallway. I know. And obviously that? in the kitchen yeah. at Brenda's house later on before he has the seizure. And it, at first I was very taken aback by those outbursts, but then I remembered that he had had this memory of his father's last words to him being, take care of yourself. <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's, yeah, there, maybe there's a way in which he is speaking up about his needs in this relationship in a way that he has not felt empowered to do before. Hmm. Well, also I think that the take care of yourself, it's ironic because Nate senior does not take care of himself. True. But also I think Nate is really grappling with, am I taking care of myself? Like I am trying to do the best that I can, but like, is that enough? And in this episode, we kind of see that that might not be enough that the medication might not be enough. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, okay. So, and I do see, I don't think I fully pulled it together, but like, right, we see Ruth and we see Nate be very tense. We see Claire be a little bit more negative than usual. Mm-hmm. And that could all be stemming from this like anxiety around or depression or whatever feelings around losing their father. A year, a year ago. Um, David does not feel phased by it. I'm going to disagree with you slightly about David not being phased because the last thing we see Nathaniel Sr. say to David is, tell me what you want for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And David then tells Keith, I want you to come over for Christmas. Oh. We, can we talk about David and Keith for a little bit? Yeah. Because I do feel like they've suddenly switched temperaments. Where in the mm. first season, David is like, does not realize what a fucking catch he has. And he is grappling with his sexuality, which is fine. You're, that is a fine thing to go through. Of course. But like, there's just this level of denial around it and not accepting it. And Keith is doing the same exact thing where he is refusing to admit that he has been traumatized by killing someone right. on the force, you know, or like while he's, you know, on duty. So it's really interesting that, and it's that same kind of like quick outbursts or like not being necessarily very kind to each other. And, but I don't know, David seems to be like, like hold and steady, not a doormat, but he's hold and steady. Well, you pointed out in one of our early episodes how in sync David and Keith naturally are with each other. Yeah. And the the specific instance that you talked about was, you remember when they sit down at the same time on the steps of the gallery? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Vaguely. When they go to see the picture of Nate peeing that Billy took. Oh, yeah. And you pointed out, it's not acknowledged, it's a subtle thing, but they just, they both sit down at the same time because they're, they're so in sync with each other. Yeah. But I think another way that two people can be in sync is when one is at a low ebb, the other one is at a high flow. Mm-hmm. They neutral each other out. They can find a harmony with each other. Well, I think- We like, are mixing those metaphors. I think we do that. I think that for some reason, whenever one of us is upset, the other one like is really quick to notice and then respond in a way that's not like, your feelings are wrong, but in a way of like, how can I- be the opposite of this and like get the, I think they're never, you're never trying to force someone to feel something specific, but you're always trying to get them back to that. Like, well, how can you be calm and like peaceful? Peaceful. And I think that especially when like someone is dealing with trauma or like processing something really big, I think that's what they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. I know. I think it is another way that they are in sync with each other. Yeah. And I think it's when like you're both at the extreme where you like need to find outside help. Well, the other thing that this is making me think about is it was such a recurring theme throughout the first season and parts of the second season that when David was in crisis, Keith would show up to save the day. Oh, yeah. And be the stable one. Yeah. And now we're getting to see David do that. Yes. For Keith. Keith saved the day a lot in season one. Yeah. And and for David, it's different. It doesn't look like... It's not quite the same sort of superhero swooping in at the most dangerous moment to avert disaster yeah. sort of thing. But he... It's, it's staying at the hospital... Until he falls asleep in the chair so that Keith doesn't come out and have to be alone. Yeah. And I think that Keith is like processing a lot of anger right now. Yeah. Or whatever he is feeling is presenting itself as anger. And David is really being like, I'm going to be that gravity blanket, boo. I'm going to hold you tight. David has not. David's anger has really. His anger is. Yeah. Drained out. Over the last few episodes. But since we're talking about both anger and couples being out of sync with each other, let's talk about the Nate and Brenda's screaming match in the kitchen. Can we start with the wedding ring? Yes. Because that I was a little confused by. I was kind of like, why is she? Wait, we should actually start with Brenda at the. Oh, my God. Clothing store. You're I think you said it one or two times ago where it's like the blur between reality and Brenda's fantasies or fantasies in general is getting real thin. Cause at first I was like, okay, this is my fantasy. And mm-hmm. then I was like, wait, no, this is real. This is a real one. And something I thought was just another really great Why piece you- of writing in that scene mm-hmm. is after the sales clerk comes over and tells the guy, your wife wants to yeah. know how you think she looks in her sweater. And then asks Brenda to leave. She says, do you validate? Yeah, what does that mean? She's referring to, do you validate parking? Because at a lot of stores and malls, oh yeah, if you buy something at the store, they'll stamp your parking ticket and you park for free. Right. But I can't help but think it's intentional that Brenda, as she later tells Melissa, is looking to validate these urges that she's having. So I just thought that was a piece of writing that was both both funny and apt. Why do we think 
that Brenda is craving this kind of attention. I think it is notable that it began to crystallize for her after she met Melissa. Yeah. But interestingly, I think in the scene where she's telling Melissa about this, Melissa says what I think we were all thinking, which is, so Brenda, are you maybe having second thoughts about your engagement to Nate? And Brenda's like, no, no, I think this is normal and healthy. I know. (laughs) Which, uh, normal is a weird word. To you, Brenda uses the word normal. She was like, this is a biological predisposition. Right. I need to select all of, you know, I need to have a sampling before I settle down with one mate. But I think it's like, it doesn't seem like she has had a lot of prior relationships or we don't really know like what her. We don't really know. It does seem like she is, she's like using her friendship with Melissa as a safe space to explore these urges that she's feeling, despite the fact that it doesn't necessarily always seem like Melissa's on board with what Brenda is doing. Because I think what Brenda is doing, I think she's misinterpreting her sexual urges as like, just because Melissa gets paid to do services, like it's a very controlled environment. And Brenda, what she's doing is completely, I don't want to, but like it's out of control, right? It's with total strangers. There isn't a formal agreement. Right. It's with Melissa clients. has very clear boundaries. Melissa has clear boundaries and Brenda is still like, where are they? It continues to seem to have something to do with this dynamic around true emotional intimacy, yep. which to jump ahead to the scene where they have the argument in the kitchen at the end of the episode, Mm -hmm. they have this big volcanic eruption at each other that then ends with them embracing. And then they start kissing. And then for the first time in a really long time, we see them having what seems to be fairly connected, passionate sex with each other until Nate has his attack. I feel like they've been having sex, but this is the first time we in a while that we have we, we have been shown them having sex and That's where it has true. seemed like they're both on the same page. That's true. So what do you make of that? Like what was it about that argument that got their needles back in the same groove on the record? Well, I think that they are both extremely tense because their families are just so bonkers and they had to spend all of this time Like, the holidays make people crazy, Mm -hmm. you know, because people just say whatever the fuck they want. And Brenda's family is obviously, she she is very nervous that it's about to go off the rails. And I think she feels really left out. She's like, I've been taking care of Billy for so long. Like, you don't know how to take care of him. You mean to her mom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with Nate, like, obviously he's suppressing the fact that he hasn't told Brenda about his seizures, about his brain thing, but also, like, Nikolai and his mom and, you know, like, the death of his dad. Like, I think they both were just, like, reached a peak. And I think I'm curious if both of them are questioning it and are really, like, frustrated because, yeah. Yeah, I wondered in that moment, I found that scene very unsettling even before Nate had his attack because it felt to me like, based on the logic of the show, 
in the last few episodes, Nate suddenly felt drawn to Brenda because she was opening up to him emotionally. And he finally felt like, yes, we're connected. We have this real intimacy. And she felt comfortable having sex with Nate because they, there was a volatility and a danger happening. And she felt like, finally, this is what I've been craving is, is this edge element Hmm. to my sex life. So it seemed like they were back in sync with each other, but they were actually responding to that moment for very different reasons. Oh, that's a beautiful observation. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's right, but I found that the sex scene unsettling for that reason. Why did Brenda cry when he brought out his grandmother's ring? There was a lot that happened in that moment. I know. And right before he brings it out, he says to Brenda, why are you always so mean to me or something like that? Like, why do you always treat me so poorly? And she says, because I use sarcasm to cover my fear of intimacy and and how broken I am or something like that. So I think she felt like she had really been called out. Mm. And then that his next response was to do something so loving. Um. Like, here's this incredibly tender thing. Probably exacerbated that feeling for her. Yeah. And she's also just like probably never really gotten that before. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, what did you make of, but well, just one more thing. It probably also made her in her mind realize a little bit, this kind of tenderness I have been realizing recently is not what I am feeling pulled towards. Mm. Oh. And so he thinks he's doing this thing that's going to bring them closer. And she, Internally, it seems, is realizing, like, no, that makes us, that makes me feel farther from you. Mm. But to that end, what did you think of Brenda and Claire in the kitchen? Both, it's not said, but what's very much happening in this episode is Claire's realizing that she is pulled towards unstable. I know, what's up with People that? who don't treat her very well. I know as Brenda is reckoning with her own pull towards anonymous kind of uncaring type of union. Yeah. It's interesting because Brenda is kind of childish in that moment. She waltzes in and she's like, your mother wouldn't even fucking look at me. Right. Right. And that's like a real, I would never, I would never say something like that in front of a sibling. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's also, it's just like not, a, it's like, Brenda, why don't you go out of your way to like give an olive branch to Ruth, which like they kind of have in the past, but it's like obviously not enough. So like, mm-hmm. what more can you do? This, this interaction also, of course, raises the question of how we feel about Claire being back in touch. I am with Billy. Not okay with this. I didn't think it was fair for Nate to be like, it's your fucking brother. I think that was just him like, Spooling over and like not being very clear headed, mm-hmm. but I am not into this. No, no, certainly not. Also, does Claire know anything about what Billy has done to Nate and Brenda? She must not. She must not because I think Claire is too. If anything, I would turn her on if she's told. So, do you think so? And not not like sexually aroused, but just in a like, oh, you know, she might. It might activate the part of her that like Gabe. Yeah. thinks, oh, maybe I can fix it. 
Right. Right, right, right. Maybe I can fix it. Can we talk about Todd for a little bit? Todd? Toby? Toby. Shaggy? Yeah. Yeah. Did you think he was being judgmental? When he was calling her out for being a Debbie Downer? I mean, I think it was inelegant. Mm -hmm. And I think he was rude to her, for sure. But I can a little bit understand he's somebody who has spent his entire life having to figure out for himself what it looks like to be a person who is respectful of other people's boundaries Mm -hmm. and not a complete individualist. And so I, Hmm. I could see where Claire's tendency to want to mess things up or rag on the rules is very disruptive to a set of values that Toby's had to carve out and hold on to for dear life for himself. Hmm. So I guess I understood where he was coming from. I certainly, it's, but his reaction was way out of sync with, it wasn't very tender or empathetic to, I mean, Claire has been telling him the entire episode, this is my, you know, this is the sink that the blood started spurting out of once. (laughs) Um, You know, this is the house full of dead bodies that I grew up in. Yeah. And it's not like Claire wants to, you know, all she suggests is going out to, throw eggs it's not like she suggests going out to do something really serious and dangerous and disruptive she's not lighting a house on fire for me the takeaway there was like once again someone fails to really see claire Mm. in her totality i don't think claire sees herself yet though i think that toby is like new sincerity Like, he's very sincere, and he's very respectful, and he seems to care in a way. He doesn't give a shit about, like, the whole, like, it's cool, you know, and Claire really hides behind that. And I think that he's a little bit more evolved than she is. So I can can see that, you know, which is ironic given that we were like, oh, Claire's so much more mature for her age. But (laughs) I don't think she sees herself yet. And I think she still hides behind this like sarcastic veil to just kind of get through until she can finally do whatever it is that she wants to do. But I don't think she's used to sincerity because that wasn't her father's pretty sarcastic. And Nate, David and Ruth were very like not there. Yeah. So and Ruth even says in that scene where. Nikolai comes up behind her the exact same way that the creepy guy in the store came up behind Brenda. Um, And Nikolai's asking Ruth about the underwear she's wearing. Um, Ruth says specifically that they're Fruit of the Loom briefs with a control top. I know. I know. I love that. Which I feel like is very much the energy. That's Ruth's energy. It's a very controlled top. (laughs) And that is its own form of insincerity. Yeah. Yeah. That Claire has been raised around. Mm. Jumping back to Billy for a second. Yeah, oh my God. I was very struck by the scene where Billy apologizes to Nate. Mm -hmm. And he says, I will always be sick. It's just something I'll have to live with for the rest of my life. Which is exactly 
the <gasps> situation that Nate is in. Exactly the situation that Nate is in. I wasn't totally sure what they were going for in that moment in terms of, I, I don't think it was about Nate finding some sort of kinship with Billy, but it was another note of Nate. We're not so different, you and I. <laughs> well, we both love Brenda yeah, in ways that are difficult to process and understand. But in the spirit of Nathaniel Sr. saying, take care of yourself, in that fleeting moment, at least, it was a moment where Billy is more clear-eyed about his condition than Nate yeah. has been willing to be. Yeah. Since he hasn't told Brenda yet. Speaking of Nate taking care of himself, I love that he gets the bike at the end. Yeah. Let's talk about that really quick. Even though he goes for a high-speed ride with no helmet on? Yeah, that part I wasn't thrilled about. <laughs> But I loved that interaction with, what was her name? I loved her. I thought she was so much more wise beyond her years. And You're talking about Jesse's widow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just loved that interaction between the two of them because I'm also curious if Nate is getting little signs about what a good, healthy connection and marriage is supposed to be and like seeing right. that he doesn't have that with Brenda. It was the second episode in a row where he flirts with somebody at the funeral. Yeah. But also, in the last episode, that happened at a funeral between a husband and wife who obviously kept some very important secrets from each other. So Nate clearly recognized, like, I don't want that. And in this one, it's like it's a I... husband and wife who were so locked in with each other. Yeah. And also, like, am I living enough? To the point that they could... They kind of gripe at each other in the first scene. You know, she says, like, get your fat ass out of that chair or whatever. I know. But then it, they're very tender with each other when he's on his way out the door. I know, I loved it. Like, he really, yeah, I loved that. But in a way, we see that mirrored at the end with Brenda and Nate when they argue in the kitchen and then have sex, mm -hmm. except that I don't think they were on the same page in the way that Jesse and his no, widow were in that scene when he walks out the door. Because Jesse's widow, she like has the moment of when they met so ingrained in her. And Brenda doesn't even realize that it's their anniversary. And Brenda doesn't even realize that it's their anniversary. Thank you for listening as always. If you would like to listen to more of our voices, there are ways for you to do that. Aren't there, Adrian? There are. I have been promising, and I'm still working on so slowly, um, another little mini-series of my travel podcast, Strangers Abroad. I would love for you guys to check it out. And I've got some upcoming episodes about mine and Sam's cross-country road trip, where he is heavily featured, and you get to hear about a different facet of our time together. So check it out. Strangers Abroad. Find it wherever you download your podcasts. As for me, I have a new episode of Family Ghosts out this week, which is a kind of unofficial sequel to one of our most popular episodes of all time, The Faith Exam, which was a fictional story. And this week on the show, we are featuring the real story 
behind that episode. So if that is of interest to you, or if family ghosts in general are of interest to you as a fan of the show Six Feet Under, which I think is likely, check out Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. Send us an email, ffg at walt.fm, and we'll talk to you next week.